Hello, and welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. Every Thursday, we go to the source of the story to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. I'm your host, Charlie, and today I'm bringing in a paper that tries to put a number on how many faces you can remember. I'm your other host, James. I haven't read this paper yet, and so I'm curious to see what that number is. So you may be wondering why we're qualified to do this podcast. Well, James and I are both PhD students. We read a ton of papers for our own research. And so this podcast is our way of sharing our love for science with anyone who wants to learn about discoveries that affect all of us. Long story short, we're the paper boys. All right, James, before we get into this, I want to ask you, pop quiz, Uh oh. how many people's faces do you think you could remember off the top of your head? So like my initial guess, just based on the number of people I interact with on a daily basis would be really low because I'm usually in a lab and I don't see that many people. You don't have many friends. Well, let's not, let's <laughs> not tell everybody that, but <laughs> I would say, you know, maybe a thousand. A thousand. Okay. Yeah. You know, like you take your... High school class size, multiple by two, divide by three, raise it to the fourth power, and divide Lots by some Lots of mathematical manager. operations. Okay. Something Th- like that's that. a reasonable guess. So it's interesting. You'd think that you'd be able to point to something and say, oh, 1,000, that's a reasonable guess. Yeah. But it turns out, actually, up until this paper I'm going to talk about, there was no number to baseline how many faces a person could remember. Really? So, I mean, theoretically, like a person could recognize an infinite number of minds or faces. No, no, no. What I mean is that they don't even know how many it is, that no one has even attempted to answer the question. Huh. Interesting. So it's not that it's theoretically infinite. It's that it's something that has never been calculated. No one knows what this bound is yet. Yet. And so, so I came across some news stories recently that really grabbed my attention because when I saw them, I was thinking, how is this never... How was this never studied before? Yeah, it seems like a, a logical experiment that you would want to do to put some bounding on what the human mind can do. Yeah, so let me give you some headlines to start off, just for the context here. Uh, Smithsonian.com, Smart News, says the average person can recognize 5,000 faces. 5,000, okay. 5,000, huh. so higher than what you said. All right. But, you know, similar ballpark. Yeah, you think about like celebrities or sports stars or things like that. Yeah, a lot so of people. we also get uh, Science Daily. Never forget a face. Research suggests people know an average of 5,000 faces. Never forget 5,000 faces. Yeah, true. You, you probably forget a lot of faces if you're only remembering 5,000. Yeah. But one more I'll give. Live Science says your memory could store up to 10,000 faces or more. Or more. Okay. Dot, dot, dot. So you got some variability in the numbers. Okay, so they're talking about this research. Who actually did this research? So this research was done at the University of York in York, United Kingdom, by an author named Rob Jenkins, and there was also Andrew Dowsett and Mike Burton. Andrew Dowsett, I think, is from the University of Aberdeen in Aberdeen, UK. Okay. Um, But yeah, Rob Jenkins and Mike Burton, both from University of York. The The paper is called How Many Faces Do People Know? And it's published- Good title. It's published in the- October 2018 issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, Biological Sciences. Okay. And we've had had some papers from uh, Proceedings of the Royal Society before. 
very well-respected journal. There's some pretty awesome research that usually comes out of this one. Wow. Okay. So before we dive into the paper, just for some context then, are these guys, are they neuroscientists? Are they behavioralists? They are psychologists. Psychologists. Okay. Just to sort of under, understand what level they're approaching this from. Yes. So they are psychologists and what they were attempting to do is essentially establish a baseline for how many faces the average human being actually knows. And so what they would classify as saying you know a face is that it's a face you would recognize if you, let's say this person walked by you on the street and you saw them, you would say, oh, I know that person. I've seen them before. Okay. You don't need to know their name. You, you just, don't need to know their name. It just has to trigger some sort of psychological response like that feeling you get when you see someone's face that you know. Yeah, totally. Like one of the 5,000 that you probably know. Okay. I'm imagining like, you know that game memory when you were a kid and you just lay out cards everywhere and you flip them over? Oh, yeah. Could you imagine like an ultimate like 5,000 by 5,000 version of that game where you're like match the faces? Oh, man. Brutal. That would be brutal. You, but. you start that game when you're six, you'd still be playing today. Yeah. So I imagine that is not the technique they use to determine how many people's faces they know. No. It, actually, the technique that they use is very, very fascinating. I thought it was like a really cool, almost like an invention of research. Well, not an invention, but a really cool application of clever math, essentially, huh. okay. to extrapolate to this number. All right. But we'll talk about that in a bit. I want to start sort of in the beginning here, which is why they were even motivated to do this in the first place. Like I said, this is a number that no one has tried to establish before, which is kind of like a glaring hole in facial recognition studies. Yeah, especially now at this point in time, like with the development of artificial intelligence and machine learning, it seems like if you were developing a system, it would be good to compare it to a human baseline. Like totally. how better humans are recognizing faces or also just like a general bound. Like it's an interesting number just behaviorally and probably evolutionarily too. Yeah, and actually they say exactly that. They say that this is a number that could be used as you start to get AI systems that are trained on millions and millions of faces. You can benchmark their performance against what a real human being would recognize. Hmm. And so it gives you it gives you that mark of saying, okay, this AI now officially beats human beings at facial recognition. Okay. Wow. So just thinking about this problem, I can think of like a ton of different ways to approach it, but how do they actually go about trying to quantify this bound? Yeah, so this is what I mentioned was super fascinating. So as a caveat, they weren't trying to get any like very precise number. They were okay. really just going after an order of magnitude because it's kind of ridiculous to think that you could pinpoint, well, humans remember 4,816 faces on or, the nose. You know, <laughs> like, you're like you're at work and you're like, oh, sorry, Jeff, didn't recognize you, you know. I reached my 5,000 limit yesterday. I, I met someone else yesterday and I lost you. Sorry. This isn't going to work. It's like it's like <laughs> back in the beginning days of Facebook when you had a top 10 friends thing on the side of your profile. And it was always very insulting when someone fell out of your top 10 friends. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you could only have 10 there, you know? Except in this case, you would actually be insulted because they just wouldn't know who you were. Oh, yes. In this case, it would be way worse. Okay. Wow. All right. So we're aiming for an order of magnitude. Yes. So they're going for an order of magnitude. Now, the way that they do this is twofold. The first part of the study has to do with recall, and the second part has to do with recognition. Okay. So it's it's an important distinction. It's semantic, but it matters. So recall means that you sitting here right now, like I asked you at the beginning, how many faces could you remember off the top of your head? 
That's that's recall. That's recall. Okay. Recognition is if I showed you a picture of this person or if you passed them on the street, would you recognize them? Okay. So sort of like when people are saying, oh, you know that really famous song from the 70s? And they're like, uh, no. Well, if I played it for you, you would know it. Totally. It's the sort exact same situation. thing, but with faces. Yeah. Okay. And so they aimed to get numbers both for how much, how many faces people could recall and how many faces people could recognize. And then they combine these two to get a final number. And I'll talk about the math on that. This is the part that I think is super fascinating. Okay, yeah, to actually combine that. So to get numbers for how many faces people can recall, what they did is they took these people participating in the study, they sat them down in a room for one hour, and they gave them like a computer with an Excel spreadsheet open, and they just told them, write down as many people as you can recall right now. And they gave them all kinds of prompts. They were like, Think about all the different places you've lived and think about your commute and think about your school. And they gave them all these sort of ways of trying to conjure up those faces that you'd experience. And again, they didn't have to remember the person's name. They would just type in like, oh, the school janitor or the lady who's always on her laptop on the bus during my commute. (laughs) Okay. All those random people who you're like, "I, I know them from somewhere. And so they gave them one hour to do that. And naturally, you'd kind of expect in one hour, you wouldn't be able to come up with everyone that you would ever have met, right? Yeah, that'd be hard. Yeah, and so what they did was that they actually tracked how many faces people recalled as a function of time during the hour. Okay. And then they were able to project. So this this number gets lower and lower. So I think what they said is that in the first five-minute period, people remember could recall on average about 40 faces and then in the last five-minute period, people were down to about 20 or so. Hmm. And this is of faces of people that they know personally. Yeah. And so they actually, it turns out that each of those five-minute blocks follows this very linear pattern. Like, you, they have a chart here, and it shows this line that's, like, perfectly decreasing. Really? Yeah. They, I mean, when they, after they average the number from all the different participants. And so then they can say, well, after the hour's up, why don't we just project this line until it hits zero? Okay. Until it gets to the point that people wouldn't remember any more faces. Yeah, that's an interesting way of extrapolating that. And then once they find the point at which it hits zero, they can just total up that number of faces and say, here's the average number they would have recalled if we gave them as much time as they needed. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one question about that. Do they take into account just the amount of time it takes to write someone's name? No, I don't think so. I mean, they have a computer. They're like typing them out fast. Okay. Like, I don't think that during this hour, they are strapped for time to type. Like, there's, by the end, they're sitting there thinking, like, uh, I'm not really sure. And then they think of one, and then they type another. Okay. It's not like for 60 minutes, they're just typing nonstop until, until their fingers bleed. Okay. I was just thinking, like, if you knew, let's say you knew and could recall, like, 4,000 faces, there's no way you're going to write that down in an hour. That's sure. Like- so, interestingly, though, what they found is that there was... There was a lot of variance in how much, how many faces people could recall, but uh-huh. no one went over, I think, like 500 or so. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was the max. And what they actually did to make sure that this method was sound, th- this I thought was really cool. So they actually, before this study ever took place, they did a pilot study where they had a bunch of participants over a five-week period, just whenever they thought of it, to write down someone whose face they remembered. And so they gave them five weeks and they just said, here, this is just going to be part of your kind of everyday thing. Just like keep a little journal, write down a face whenever you remember it. 
And what they found is that the numbers from that little pilot study matched very closely with the numbers they got doing this one hour thing. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. That's surprising. So like on average, people were able to remember like, you know, about 500 or 200 or whatever the whatever this average was that they found in the one hour period. That's funny. When you see people on like Facebook then with like 3000 friends and you want to be like, I bet you don't even know what who all those 3000 people are. Well, what's interesting is they probably do know who all 3000 people are. But if you took their computer away from them, they couldn't tell you those 3000. Okay, so it does. It is like a social crutch. Oh, totally. Yeah. All right. Totally. But side tangent. Sorry. Well, it's not a side tangent because that actually brings us to the second part. So if you just did that, then you would say, okay, well, so the number that they got by projecting that line was on average 549. Okay. So if you just took that one part of the study, then you would say, okay, the average number of faces a person can recall is 549. So how did we get to 5,000? Okay. And this is then where you come up with the difference between recall and recognition? Yes, exactly. So recognition comes into play. So you would recognize all 3,000 of your Facebook friends probably. Well, I wouldn't. I probably, I definitely have lots of people when I'm going through that I'm like, no clue who you are. And I also don't have 3,000 friends. Yeah. yeah. That's a different story. I don't even have 549 friends. <laughs> uh, so what they then did is they had this database of famous figures. And they did a second recall task where they asked people to just recall celebrities that they can remember. Okay. So so the first hour was, okay, for anyone that you know personally. And then they did a separate one-hour session where they did the same task, but where the, you're just trying to remember celebrities. So that could be like politicians or royalty or actors, musicians, athletes, you know, all those people people who are famous for things. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Famous podcasters. Yeah. Your your paper boys. So they got a number. Interestingly, actually, people were able to remember fewer celebrities than they were people they know personally. That's good. I think that's good. So the average they got from that was 395. All right. So... All if right. you add those together, that means that people are, on average, able to recall without any sort of prompt. They're able to recall 944 faces between people they know and people that they've seen on TV and stuff. Again, we're still short of 5,000. All right. Yeah, I'm like we're missing about 4,000 faces there. Yeah. So here's the part that I thought was extra clever about their technique. They have this whole separate task, which is the recognition task. Now, this is like part two that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. They built a database of 3,441 celebrities that like they just came up with over like a several month period. Just, you know, they just like added names to a list until they couldn't anymore. Yeah. And then they went and they found pictures of these celebrities. And importantly, they got two pictures of every celebrity, two different pictures. Because there's and this was a pretty interesting discussion they had here in the paper, uh, which is about this concept called image invariance. And this has been studied very well in facial recognition studies before this, is that for faces you know, they are subject to image invariance, which means that if I see you here today, James, and then I see you tomorrow, you look different. I'm seeing you in different lighting. I'm seeing you at a different angle, but I still would recognize you. You understand the like the principal features that make up my face or someone else's face or exactly. you've seen them in different conditions. Exactly. And so- okay. That's not always going to be the case when you've only seen someone on the TV screen or in a picture, right? Yeah. So what they wanted to do here is distinguish between 
the idea of recognizing a photo of something and recognizing that that person themselves. Hmm. So if they're to show you two different pr- pictures of Barack Obama and you say, yes, you recognize one of them, but you say, no, you don't recognize the other one, then they just said, then you don't recognize them at all. Huh. Because they, they're trying to make sure that you have the same image invariance on the celebrity okay. like you would if you saw them in person. That makes sense. Dude, they better copyright this because like, I feel like companies like Tinder are going to be wanting to buy, to buy this. Oh, totally. I mean, that, and that's why I say this is like a really cool technique, like almost an invention. It's it's like this very simple but powerful algorithm in some sense that allows you to extrapolate. So the way they get the final number, they take that database of celebrities. Okay. And it turns out of the 3,441 celebrities, people were able to recognize with image invariance about 775 of those on average. Wow, okay. Now, since they did a task where they had to recall celebrities, a lot of the celebrities they recalled were already in this database. So they're, okay. So now they calculate something they call the recall to recognition ratio. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, it, and it, this all sounds like kind of like dorky and simple, but it's actually really cool if you think about it. So what they did is they took the number of celebrities that they recalled during the recall task and then they compared that to how many celebrities they recognized from the database. Okay. And of course, there was some celebrities that they recalled that weren't in the database and vice versa. But so they only took the ones that they recalled that were actually in the number of people they recognized from the pictures. And they compare those two numbers and they found that people were able to recall one in every 4.62 celebrities that they recognized does that make sense i feel like i just explained that in the worst way but yeah yeah so i guess uh maybe in other words if i understood it correctly then it's like you have a smaller set of faces that you can recall and a larger set that you can recognize and so through this experiment they're able to show that roughly you can recall about one in five faces that you recognize Yes, exactly. Okay, that makes sense. And the reason that that number is important is because for the personal faces recalled, they don't know how many people they actually know, Mm. or they don't know how many people they actually recognize in real life. They just are able to get how many people they were that they could remember in the task. Yeah. So if they take this recall to recognition ratio, they can say, "All right, well, for every one person in their personal life that they remembered, there's five or there's four more that they didn't remember, but that they, they, they would recognize. Huh, interesting. So we had that 944 number from the total number of faces remembered. Now you multiply that by your recall to recognition ratio, which is 4.62, and you get 4,240 faces that okay. you're able to recognize. Round that up, and you're at 5,000. And that's what they do. They, then they're just like, nah, now we just round it up, because we're just going for an order of magnitude. Interesting, interesting. So stop me if I'm getting into the discussion too soon, but I feel like there are some interesting factors with this research. Like if you think about temporarily over time, how this research may have changed. Like imagine if you did the study 200 years ago when people didn't see celebrities on TV. Yeah, well, that's what's really interesting about this. And they talk about in the motivation is like for the majority of human history, we've lived in groups of less than 100 people. Yeah, you'd probably only see 200 people in your entire lifetime. Yeah, like we're really one of the first generations growing up who's been able to see thousands and thousands of faces. Yeah, I mean, we've probably seen millions by this point. It's crazy. So 
I think what's really fascinating that this study reveals is that the human brain is just really robust to those types of social changes. Ooh, that's interesting. Like if you imagine a parallel world, parallel universe where people had evolved and like, what if we could only support, like we were talking about earlier, like 300 faces in our oh, brain? Oh, yeah. None of the technology and stuff you have now would be that way. Like it wouldn't, I mean, we wouldn't want Facebook, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'd just be totally saturated. Yeah. I, man, it brings up a lot of really interesting questions then. Yeah, like what's the limit? What's the limit? Or is it pulling resources from somewhere else? You know, they talk about like neuroplasticity, how your brain is able to adapt uh, like through brain injury or like through different tasks. It can reallocate different assets and yeah. cells. So it's like, are we dedicating a lot more brain resources to facial recognition because we have to interact and sort of choose between so many oh. more faces? And does that mean then that like we're stupider? We're losing out on other things? And yeah, forgetting words or like, you know, maybe our attention is affected by that yeah that's a really good point um that's that's really interesting the other yeah well and you mentioned about increasing the number of people that you actually see on a day-to-day basis one thing they talk about here is that they really only test what they're testing 25 students at the university of aberdeen Uh uh-huh and these are all people who live around the same area and i think aberdeen is a pretty populated city what they say is like well what if we took this out into the countryside and did this in like a really small village somewhere yeah. somewhere far out there? Would they re- would they be able to recall and recognize fewer faces? Oh, that'd be interesting. Because they don't interact with as many people on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, or if you go to like a Quaker village or something or like a community where you're pretty sure that many of the people have not been exposed to TV or things like that. Yeah, or like what if you go do this study on retail employees in Manhattan Oh, man. Who probably have seen a billion faces, you know? Yeah, seriously. Like, oh. does that number go up by a lot? And that's the reason why they want to get this as an order of magnitude. Because mm-hmm. if you were to repeat this study with different groups of people, maybe you'll get 7,000 for the Manhattan people, and maybe you'll get 3,000 for the Quaker people. But that is actually really significant to say, well, it changed a little bit, but the order of magnitude is still the same. So, like, our brains are all still operating the same, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So this really makes me think to one of my favorite books by Dr. Oliver Sacks, who studied a lot of neurology and um, brain disease and illnesses, specifically like facial recognition. Oh, really? He wrote the famous book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat Rack or something like that. Oh, I've I've heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting because he actually suffered from this illness, which I guess is called prosopognosia. Prosopognosia. Yeah. They talk about that in this paper here about oh, how really? like yeah like two percent of people suffer from this and so it's i don't know important to characterize I, they talk about it in their discussion of the image invariance okay so okay yeah it's just it's interesting like to see it in this study too like on a high level what the bounds are but it's like it's fascinating all the processing that goes into it just thinking back to his book like when you recognize a face like you're seeing all these distinct f- features and there's this high level processing that has to come into play to say like Oh, eyes, nose, eyebrows, cheeks, like that makes a face and you can not have that level of processing. Yeah. Wait, so people with prosopagnosia are not able to put together those things into a face? Yeah. It's like you show them a picture of a face, for example. And I think in some cases they'll say, oh yeah, I see eyes. I see nose, a nose. I see eyebrows. (laughs) But like, if you're like, what is it then? 
they can't take that next step to say like that's a face or that further step of saying like oh that's my wife or that's wow. my boyfriend or husband or whatever that's crazy so yeah. i mean if you were to do this study on people with that condition would they only remember faces from before they had some sort of trauma or that's a good question i'm not sure i'm not sure how that is uh generated like over time like if there's a point where you remember faces before and then everything after or if you ran them through the study and they'd just be like why are you showing me all these eyes noses mouths <laughs> yeah like what's a face you know yeah well and that also kind of makes the implication of this even more broad you could say you could use it as a baseline to compare for people who do have trouble with facial recognition like you could run this people on people who have mild forms of that or who have other brain conditions and say well how many faces were they able to recognize and so yeah. you can use this as that number to, to test that's a great point yeah from what you were saying it sounds like there were pretty steady averages based on the people that they studied actually th so that this is the other thing that i really cool result from this study uh -huh. is that it was not steady across the participants really it okay. ranged from 1,000 to 10,000 wow so that's why okay. some of those headlines mentioned 10,000 is that there were there were some of these participants were able to recognize 10 times more faces as some of the other ones. Whoa. And so the implication there is that like, you know how some people just go like, oh, I, I'm I'm just bad with faces. Or like some people say, oh, I never forget a face. Yeah. That actually could be true that some people are just better with faces. Like people just have better ability to remember and recognize people that they've met. Oh, huh, wow. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's super interesting. Really interesting to see where it goes on like a systems neuroscience and psychology level. Like what are the implications of this now? Yeah, this this uh, one of the authors, Rob Jenkins, he's quoted in the Science Daily article. He says, the range could be explained by some people having a natural aptitude for remembering faces. Alternatively, it could reflect different social environments. Some participants may have grown up in more densely populated places with more social input. Mm. So that goes back to our discussion earlier of how much does the people around you play into this? That's interesting. Okay, so I mentioned Oliver Sacks, but I have to bring up one of my favorite neuroscience research projects that Ooh, we learned okay. about in a class. So apparently there are some cells, like specific neurons that you have as well in your brain that fire to a specific face. No. What? Yes. They are so-called dubbed the Jennifer Aniston cells. N Wait, that's the scientific name? I mean, kind of. Wait, did you come up with that or or the no? No, like there are articles. If you Google Jennifer Aniston cell or neuron, like you'll get a ton of hits. Oh man. Yeah, and so. Uh, wait, wait. Why is it called? Just because the theory is like, oh well, everyone's got a Jennifer Aniston neuron or something. I think so. Like everyone's seen or heard of Friends. You know, everyone. Gotcha. For the I most mean, part, I could tell you, I probably got two or three of those neurons. <laughs> right, but so like there are these specific neurons that will fire, a single neuron will trigger to a face. Maybe it's Jennifer Aniston, maybe it's Brad Pitt, Barack Obama, or someone famous, or like your sister, something like that. But yeah, so there are individual neurons that are related to facial recognition. I forget so, the, the full implications of the study, but... So I'm assuming, though, that there's a lot of overlap in like large groups of neurons or something, that like most of them are sort of for a general face but then there's just little fringe ones that correspond to certain faces maybe as i understood it i think okay. they, they studied a population of neurons and like with the introduction of like certain faces in like even different pictures of a, the same face one single neuron would fire and the rest of the population would be quiet 
And then if they changed it, another neuron would fire, like from Jennifer wow. Aniston to your grandma to like a dog. So that almost begs the question of, is that your upper limit? Having something to do with the number of neurons that are dedicated to facial recognition. Because like, yeah. you need some unique combination of neurons, it sounds like, to recognize one particular face. Maybe the number of unique combinations is in like the trillions or the quadrillions, but maybe that's your upper limit. I don't know. Yeah, what's like your hardware memory limit? Yeah, the actual well, and that's what and so that's what they say is like they're not aiming to try to find the number of faces you could theoretically remember. They're like that's more that's a more a question for people who study memory. Like that's you know not what we're going for here. Uh-huh. So I wonder where the overlap in those two approaches to this is. Yeah, and then like maybe there's like, the brain does cool processing techniques to sort of optimize that. Like you remember these five people have like similar facial features so you can oh they all share a lot of neurons yeah Yeah. i don't know well that's cool this would be a very invasive way of testing it and i'm sure those participants would not be down (laughs) to have an electrode implanted in their brain it's a little more than they signed up for yeah who knows maybe neuroscience of the future can start to ask those questions yeah so okay the study is super interesting but you mentioned the pop science articles that led you to it in the first place how did they do uh for the most part these were pretty good actually i mean the study was relatively simple and it's actually interesting the way that this study was laid out it was almost like they wrote the study for like journalists or or for like not scientists like they started out with an introduction and then they did like a methodological approach overview thing and then just like straight into just like discussion of the results And then there's a whole section at the end that's like as long as the rest of that, that is the actual method and results of the paper. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's almost like their paper is kind of like a technical, a more technical article about their research. And then the the back end of it is the real sciencey part of how they achieved this. Oh, okay. Interesting. And there's this one, you know, there's one figure in the entire thing, but it's this like, it's this perfectly, I mean... I know you're a you're a big figures guy yourself. Don't get James. me started on figures, man. Yeah. You, like this is what you should aspire to. This one figure condenses the entire method and all the results of the study into just this one little block at the top of the page. Oh, it's amazing. Man. Like I found myself so many times while reading this just flipping back to this figure to like reconnect it to what they were saying and every time I looked back at the figure I was like, "Oh, okay, okay. That's the beauty of figures." It's incredible. I yeah. like wow. someone must have spent full month just making this one thing perfect because they could have done like four or five different things throughout the paper and it's just like they just melted them all into one that's just perfect oh man that's so cool i'll definitely have to check that out yeah and anyone else who's listening to find our find the link to this paper on our site uh, paperboyspodcast.com and you'll you'll go check out this figure it's it's very awesome wow but well, the news articles yeah So I think that they got it right because this paper was very easy to digest because they put so much care into making it digestible. So major props to the authors. That said, they didn't all nail it. Um, The Smithsonian one, I know you're a fan of them. They nailed it. Way to go, Smithsonian. Yeah. through again. Um, So the article was super solid. You know, she clearly read the entire paper. And I think that if you were just like an average person and you read this story, you'd be very well informed on the study. Okay. So the Science Daily article was okay. Um, it doesn't really do much detail on the methodology, which I thought was the coolest part about the paper. Yeah. But it does have a lot of good quotes from Rob Jenkins, the first author. But 
the reason why it has good quotes from him is because the article is actually just a press release that he wrote. Oh. And like he sent out to a bunch of things and then Science Daily just like published that one. That makes sense. Yeah. So, Rob. Yeah. But he Way is. Way to go, Dr. Jenkins. He is in there talking about, um, you know, which they didn't talk about this in the study, but he has this in his little press release about like maybe there's an age, like a peak age at which you recognize the most number of faces. Like oh, he said, he says cool. maybe over time you accumulate faces and then after a certain age you start forgetting faces. So you could like track that number over over different ages of people. It'd probably be a good signal for different phases of life too. Like if something bad is happening neurologically as well. Yeah, totally. And like, you know, Cursor. when I was 15, I probably needed to remember a ton of faces because I probably was like, it's probably a super social time. Now, like, you know, you're pushing 30. It's like, I don't know. I only have a couple friends now. I don't need to know that many people. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's one more article from The Guardian. Psychologist face-off reveals humans can recognize 5,000 people. I don't know what they even mean when they say they're face-off. Yeah, that's confusing. Yeah. Like like it was this battle between different psychologists for this study. But uh, the paper, the article's also not that great. It totally glosses over the methodology. Like they just say like, oh, they just combined results from recall and recognition. But like the details of how they combine those and how they actually got a number out of that is like it was a lot more thoughtful than just combining them. Very thoughtful. Like, I mean, it's it's so elegant, you know, I think that the scientists deserve a lot of credit for that. Like, it's really hard to boil something down into such a simple solution. That's literally just like A times B kind yeah. of thing. That, yeah. Where it actually results in something accurate. So but they did get a quote from Mike Burton, who was a third author, who said, we were quite surprised by how high the top end was. Eh, I mean, of all the quotes you could get from the scientists. I mean, it's it's a good little piece of commentary. Uh, and I think it probably echoes what a lot of people would say, right? Well, you guessed. That's true. No, that's that's true of like what's surprising about it. But, yeah, uh, I mean, you guessed that you would remember 1,000. And it turns out, you know, the highest they found in this study was 10,000. That's, that's true. a big difference. It, that is a big difference. I guess I was just putting myself in the perspective of like, if you have the opportunity to talk with a researcher and it's like, uh, you don't want to ask all these questions. And like, I know. That's the only one you got, but I that's know. cool. All right. I, I'll give it to him. So that's pretty much it for this paper and the articles. Um, I, I, you know, reading it back now, it didn't sound as exciting as it was when I read the paper. So this is one of those ones that I really suggest you go read the paper yourself because it's very, very easy to read as a layman. It's There's no crazy science terms and even like where they do talk about some of these conditions, like it doesn't impact this research that much so just go like give it a read it'll take you 45 minutes and i think it'll give you a whole new respect for just the elegance of these types of psychological studies no that's i think it's a great article and i'm glad you brought it in it's interesting to look at the methodology that they use to actually try to quantify something like that especially because it's like a very evident question that you might ask and it's fascinating that no one's even thought to ask it yet always cool to see that creativity and trying to figure out how to come up with a first cut at these answers. So now it's time for our weekly grad student highlight where we take the chance to humanize research across the country and the world by inviting a graduate student like ourselves to talk about their own research. It's their chance to put their work in their own words and to share it with the world. Yeah, this week we have a grad student at MIT, Jacob Adams, who's working on superconducting magnets for fusion energy. So why don't we let him tell you a little bit about his research on his own. This is Jacob Adams chiming in from MIT's Nuclear Science and Engineering Department. 
I'm a first-year graduate student who is working in a lab where we make things extra cold. I'm talking negative 450 degrees Fahrenheit cold. Getting materials down to these low temperatures is a challenge, but there are worthwhile reasons for doing so. At very low temperatures, some materials exhibit what is known as superconductivity, where the electrical resistance of a material vanishes. This means once you get a current flowing in a superconductor, it will never stop. There are many applications of superconductors, such as building powerful magnets to confine charged particles in nuclear fusion experiments, to making superconducting quantum interference devices, otherwise known as squids, to detect very subtle magnetic fields, such as those created by neural activity in the brain. Let's not forget one of the key challenges associated with using superconductors, though. You've got to keep the material really cold for the magic to happen. Current cooling systems require large and power-hungry equipment that are only suitable in a laboratory environment. My work is on the development of a micro-cooling device that is small and easily portable to bring these superconducting electronics into commonplace. I'm new to this field, so it's hard for me to find any glaring flaws in current media articles. However, once I become a more seasoned graduate student, I hope to be able to sift through the buzzwords and reveal the truth held within a peer-revealed journal article, just like our paperboys do. Well, thanks for sharing that, Jacob. I think there is no doubt among everyone listening that your research is super cool. Super cool. And you are well on your way to becoming just like your paper boys. <laughs> that was awesome, man. Thank We're you. very flattered. So thank you, everyone, for listening. Please, if you like the show, subscribe. And even better yet, I would love it if you just went and told one friend about this show. Does anyone that you know who's like kind of into science just tell them, like, hey, there's this cool show called Paper Boys. Check them out. You'd make my day. If you don't want to tell a friend, at least give us some feedback on iTunes, Twitter, or even by email at paperboyspod at gmail.com. We love to hear your feedback, and if you have any story requests as well, we'd love to cover them. Please join us next week for another exciting edition of Paper Boys. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>